everybody. Shekh Patchwai, which means good afternoon in the Yakima language. And we're, of course, all uh, Yakimas here uh, streaming from the Yakima Nation Reservation in uh, South Central Washington State. Uh, welcome to this episode of War Cry Podcast. We are an all Native run podcast discussing data, events, stories, issues and historical connections about Northwest missing and murdered natives. Thank you for joining us for this episode. My name is Emily Washings and co-hosts today are Patsy Whitefoot, Robin Piwishi and Lucy Smartlawit. What we're gonna talk about today is, again, we're gonna continue this aspect of uh, boarding schools uh, called in the United States and in Canada, residential schools. So uh, how does this connect to missing and murdered uh, indigenous natives? What are the historical contexts that, uh, what are the historical issues and things that have continued to this day? I won't use my uh, MPA speech <laughs> uh, terminology here. We're gonna try to keep it conversational like we're at a diner on the reservation. One of our favorite things to do when we're not in a pandemic. Uh, I'm gonna start off by reading a little bit of uh, a quote from a uh, Captain Richard H. Pratt on the education of Native Americans. Uh, this is an 1892 article. This can be found at carlisleindian.edu uh, site. And again, this is the, uh, this is the sentiment of people and why they thought uh, they should be removing native children from homes. And again, this is a very sensitive topic. It can be triggering to so many and our hearts go out to everybody that's uh, you know, going through this trauma and historical trauma. Captain Richard H. Pratt on the education of Native Americans. A gate general has said that the only good Indian is a dead one and that the high sanction of his destruction has been enormous factor in promoting Indian massacres. In a sense, I agree with that sentiment, but only in this, that all the Indian there is in the race should be dead. Kill the Indian in him and save the man. Now I wanna to turn to my uh, co-hosts today and get their response on what they think about this uh, speech on the education of Native Americans. I'll start with Robin. Okay. Uh, when I was younger, this speech really affected me even just hearing the, um, the, the overall summary of it, which is kill the Indian, save the man. And in, I learned more about it when I was actually in college, even though I grew up on a reservation and even though I had a grandmother who went to boarding school, um, you know, it wasn't until I got into uh, AIS classes or Native American studies classes uh, at the university that I was able to see teachers who looked like me. Um, and they were the ones who taught me essentially what uh, this all meant. And they're the ones who brought to light like the timeline, how, how recent in history this was. And uh, despite how recent in history this quote was, uh, that sentiment had been uh, around, I'd wanna say since contact 
Um, so thinking about that uh, always brings up the um, resiliency of Native people and the ability to uh, survive blatant efforts of extermination and genocide. And, um, and, in, and in some cases, as we're discussing today, how sometimes it, it really was literal killing of the Indian inside of a person. If they couldn't kill the Indian in, metaphorically inside of a person, they would just kill them, you know? Um, so it does bring up a lot of sadness. It does bring up a lot of um, reflection even now. And it's, it's hard to say because I'm not that person, but did Pratt have good intentions? You know, history, movies always portray Pratt as having good intentions as being like, well, this is for their own good because, you know, they have trouble integrating into what society we've built now. And it's, it's kind of like, but really, is it good for them? You know, and I know it was like, I don't know. I know that the challenges Pratt had, um, even even with that form of what would seem to be a radical stance, which is like save them instead of um, like the military or the, the general anybody who's colonizing uh, any any country colonized, which is just kill them. You know, just get rid of them and kill them. Um, so it's always like this complex reflection on the legacy of what that statement enacted, uh, which is again, me, essentially, you know, I, I think I saw somewhere quoted that there is no native family that wasn't touched by, you know, uh, efforts of genocide, of boarding schools, um, and kind of the topics we bring up here today, which is violence against women, um, MMIW. And so, you know, I, I mean, aside from that, it's just, I guess my overall thoughts is it's such a complex, but yet very sad um, thing to reflect upon. But I, I feel like I can't really articulate beyond that. So I hope that my co-hosts have a, a more articulate way to, to frame this. That's all I got. Uh, Lucy or Patsy, do you want to uh, give a response to Robin's thoughts on resiliency of Native people, on the, um, if they couldn't kill the Indian inside of them, then they might kill the actual Indian or Native. So as uh, Robin was speaking, I was thinking about, um, you know, my own family members, my you know, my grandmother um, you know, who had raised me and the fact that she was in the Fort Simcoe military school. And then I was also a part of the, the Yakima Indian mission in White Swan. Um, you know, I look to the elders uh, and ancestors today who had the fortitude and uh, desire to continue on in life, despite the fact that um, they had very cruel treatment in these military schools. And when you think about to kill the Indian, save the man is the quote that, um, you know, that Pratt had. Um, it makes me think about 
family again today. Uh, today I received word that a, a family member had passed away over, uh, she was from Randall and we would visit family. I had a great, great grandmother. She, you know, she didn't speak uh, the, the English language, but, you know, my grandmother would interpret for her and would interpret to us. And when I think about the statement, I also think about because she lived to be 100 years old, I think about what she used to say to us. And you know, my grandmother would talk about it. She said that, you know, when the white man came and uh, she said the white man would point an iron stick at you and you would fall over dead. I mean, if you stop to think about the, you know, the interpretation of that in our language, it's a pretty sad, I think, to just have that kind of a a memory and a thought in your mind and the fact that I grew up as a young child with that kind of, um, you know, conversations that went on in our life. Uh, and, and where I lived in Medicine Valley, it was a very isolated area. And when I was very young, uh, didn't get to see much of public or society at all. And so the kind of communication I had was with family primarily and many ancestors who carried these stories, but I, I'm always thankful to our ancestors, you know, like today and those stories that they shared with us and, you know, have deep reverence and prayers uh, because of that. Um, you know, despite these challenges and um, tragic uh, situations that they were subjected to, uh, always thankful for their perseverance. And like I said, their fortitude and their belief in a creator that we could continue to be here. When we think about, um, you know, some of the data that uh, Emily was talking about earlier, you know, the data had the Yakima people at one time where I saw data when I was doing some studies, you know, like at a thousand people and look at where we are today. And that's the same all over Indian country. We have tribes that are being, um, you know, renewed, they're working toward revitalization and language, that which was forbidden, uh, that which they were uh, punished for speaking in these boarding schools. Today, we're in you know, era of revitalization and reclaiming language, reclaiming who we are. And it's sad to think about the boarding schools uh, find of children in Canada. And at the same time, we've continued to grow as a people and continue to give respect uh, to the children and will continue to do that because that's what we were taught by our, with our own children today. There is so much work to do when we think about the connections between boarding schools and missing and murdered indigenous women, violence against one another that, uh, we have a lot of work to do. And when I think about it, I think about the institutions that we've encountered, you know, during this time, the institutions of, um, you know, settlement, uh, the colonial settlement that occurred, which was a part of the Catholic Church, um, and all of these churches that were involved in this. So working toward reconciliation and resolution on these kinds of issues is going to take time. And so when we think about the role of these churches and the federal government in these boarding schools, that also translates to public education today. And we can you know, go on and on uh, about the inst all these institutions 
that have created these challenges and barriers for the work that needs to be done. And so that's what we all have to do collectively continue uh, addressing these institutional practices and institutional policies. Thank you uh, for, for your conversation, Robin. Yeah, thank you, uh, Patsy, for bringing up so many different elements that connect to this. Uh, Lucy? I just um, wanna talk a little bit about like what Robin had shared in regards to um, going to grad school and then learning about these things or going to college and then learning about some of this history. Um, I literally had to leave the reservation and go to the Midwest where, um, to Missouri of all states, where there were no uh, federally recognized tribes, let alone any people. And of course, you know, and so forth. And so it was really hard for me to wrap my head around the fact that I had to go to grad school to learn about Indian Relocation Act um, or the Indian Reorganization Act or even um, just the fact that how boarding schools had impacted us. And then all of a sudden it just started to click like, oh, we live on an industrial reservation and this is what they tried to make us do, you know, or we're on a checkerboard reservation. And so, um, Having that and uh, and knowing that a lot of my colleagues were not familiar with reservation life, um, because you know a lot of them have been in places where they were, um, you know, growing up in the city more or less, and so um, it was really challenging for me to to all of a sudden like, oh, this makes sense, you know, like. Um, being led by, you know, the U.S. government and then having that forced upon us to, you know, turn into a tribal government and to sustain ourselves in that patriarchal system. So I, you know, I, I have been thinking about this conversation actually quite a bit since last week. And I was also thinking about like, what, you know, like we had, you know, presented this question, I don't remember who it was, but um, it might have been you, Emily, about what the, like the socioeconomic benefits are of genocide in general, are of boarding schools. And so I really tried hard to take away like the emotional pieces. And I know that we have talked about, like Patsy had mentioned, um, the institutions that create those barriers. And so um, I know for myself to have not having this self-awareness, I had to really dig deep and had to have people explain to me like the institutions are everywhere, you know, from our funeral homes to our grocery stores to our gas stations, who owns, you know, what, um, you know, and why don't we see a lot of these um, places owned by our own people and how can we support each other economically? And, you know, so, and of course it goes deeper than that. I think, um, so I don't know, it, it sounds like a tangent, but it's not, if there's a point to this, but I had watched a Killer Mike interview and I don't know if you guys are familiar with Killer Mike, but he is a big black activist down in Atlanta, Georgia, who was trying to live black. He does a Netflix series called Trigger Warning. And so one of his first episodes, he's talking about how, how can we keep, you know, the dollar in the black community versus having it go out. And so he was just talking about um, the economic impact, but then when we start going into the history pieces of what was robbed, you know, like he said, 
um, and this is not verbatim, but he had said something to the effect of like, you know, history had robbed me as a black man because, you know, I did not know that there were other ways that we could be seen, you know, like through Black Wall Street or, you know, we could be professionals, we could be doctors, we could be all of those things. But the only way that he was taught was to see themselves as slaves. And then through all the caricatures through history, whereas history had also robbed, you know, dominant society by um, also presenting, you know, uh, Black people as slaves and robbing them of the humanization of all other ethnicities, right? Because the only way that we are portrayed in history is, you know, like the Indian Wars are, you know, these battles and so forth and the people to be conquered. And, um, and the same thing, you know, I would feel very similar about Black people just being portrayed as slaves when in reality, you know, we had medicine and we had, um, you know, ways that were, that were respectable and that were working, you know, prior to colonization. So I just thought that was really uh, profound because it just goes to show how deep, <clears throat> deeply conditioned we are to really see and lose our sense of identity through this and the impact of, um, of forced assimilation, you know, that I, I sometimes think of that trauma and not knowing like what my family has gone through. Um, it, it just, it floors me. It, it floors me that um, in ways it could be a complacent thing. Like, yeah, we know, we know, you know, family went to boarding school. Yeah, we all know somebody that's missing or murdered. Yeah, we heard about that, you know, that fight or that drive-by or whatever it was or um, whatever that may be. And so I just think um, sometimes it's hard to see that life doesn't have to be this way. And, you know, um, I don't know, like it, it's just really, I don't know. I, I had to really uh, ref do some reflecting with this episode and as far as like what I wanted to bring to the table and how, you know, we do know of um, mass graves, you know, being like at Chamawa school, at Carlisle Indian school. And, you know, this is not anything that's, that's news. So, I don't know. I'm just kind of thinking out loud. Uh, thanks, Lucy. So, you know, you could clearly see there's so much coming up for myself and my co-hosts on this topic. There are so many different uh, connections that it seems like we're in real time, uh, you know, figuring it all out, putting it all out on the table. In our ceremonies, uh, <laughs> there's this process where we put out food. And then, so you think it's, okay, this is what it's going to be. And then all of a sudden, if you're somebody that's not in the kitchen uh, and you're sitting there, you're like, wow, what else is coming out? What is this? You had your mind set because they're, you know, you don't eat at that certain time. You have to wait and you're singing and of course, praying and thinking good things and being in ceremony and in community. Um, but there is a small part of you that is hungry. <laughs> <laughs> and then you start thinking about what you're going to get, of course, our traditional foods. But then it's like, oh, maybe that jello, maybe that potato salad. Oh, I have the option between macaroni and potato. What am I going to do? But um, 
this is reminding me of that, you know, this analogy of, you know, the things that we think are going to come up in our prep episodes. And then, you know, what is the full picture of what's coming out? And of course, this has come up for me as well. Uh, I think, you know, uh, the aspects that Robin brought up about Native resiliency, it's kind of how I have to close out each day when I'm thinking of this aspect and trying to make sure to uh, have everything that I've uh, read or been triggered by to make sure I don't bring that into my home, to make sure that I don't bring that into uh, cooking for my family, that I recenter. But there are some questions that we have about, you know, this statement, this policy, this federal uh, Indian policy, which we still use the term Indian because it's a federal policy term. Uh, we uh, generally go by tribal affiliation directly or Native American, but American Indian is a federal policy term that's embedded and built into a number of our agreements with the uh, federal government, which is why it's still utilized and why we still reference it. Um, but when we, when we look at this history, when we look at this statement, it does make me think a little bit about the timeline. So what I mean by that is we have a timeline that basically went 1855 uh, to 1858. We had a, the Yakima War, which was started from the violence of Native women. Now, most historians and most history books cite a different reason. They cite the uh, killing of minors, the ones that raped and murdered the Yakima women and children, uh, as the reason the war started. Um, so you have this timeline of a three-year war and of men and different tribes, you know, even though it's called the Yakima War, there were more than just the Yakimas at this uh, war. As Patsy had referenced our numbers, you know, there was no way we could take on the uh, United States military and the militia with just Yakima numbers. We had our neighboring tribes that assisted and helped. And it's, I always go back to this point and it's something that my co-hosts have brought up as well is why would so much, how could we get so many of our tribe to just have such a strong response to our women being uh, hurt, our children being hurt? And then, you know, looking in the newspaper and looking at the numbers and it's, uh, you know, people are scared to talk. People are scared to come forward. Um, how did we get there? And you look at the different policies and you look at the different federal policies and the places that they've gone and the, the targeting of our people and how that has unfolded to have us arrive at the place we are at now. You know, it definitely has had an impact. You know, when we have a, war, a Yakima war, you know, something that I research and I'm like, well, where are all of our historical accounts? Why is there bits and pieces that I have to like pull together from our people? Um, and you look at the timeline, you know, my co-host talked and brought up timelines. You do look at the timeline and you're like, okay, look, they went to war and then they took their children and took them to boarding schools. It's like, we barely even blinked. It was like the, the next like six months after the war. It's like, now we're gonna remove all your children. Um, how are those stories passed down? How are the stories uh, in historical accounts when we have an oral history passed down to our native children? 
And when you only have so much time with them, like whatever bits and tiny pieces that you eventually end up getting with them, are you going to necessarily like, let's sit around and talk about war, not about, you know, visiting and celebration of your life and different aspects. So, you know, and I believe that that's a theme that's continued from this historical policy. I believe this silencing of our native voices, our, na our own perspective in history is direct, is directly a part of that policy. If we can silence them, if we can keep them quiet, then, and get them to be who we want them to be and how we want them to live and what we want them to ever report or to say. You know, this is a continuation. So we can look at these present day cases and look at and be horrified because they are horrifying. They're people we love, they're people in our community. And we can also look at the historical aspects and see how things line up, see how we arrived at this place. And yet still ask who benefited from this policy? Who and what are the systems that created it that perhaps had generational wealth that is still out there in the United States, that had um, systems where they sold native children to be in, in indentured servitude to other people. You know, so there are a lot of the aspects that come up to this, you know, being targeted and continuing targeting of our children, not only from boarding schools, but also from following them after boarding schools, knowing that women could hold and have land at Yakima was something that was shared in newspapers since 1910. Um, dusky maidens in demand. This is what we were called in 1910. If, uh, if the four of us, I mean, YouTube didn't exist in 1910, but if the four of us were in 1910, that's what they would have been calling us. And that's how they would have been targeting us, our grandmothers, our aunties. You know, so there's a lot that uh, obviously comes up in, uh, <laughs> with this. I continue to kind of go back and, and and ask, you know, what is going on with all that. Um, Lucy brought up the different aspects of our African-American community or black community. There um, has been different actual um, unmarked graves and projects that have centered on the black community as well uh, as something that I've looked at and researched alongside this. Um, so, you know, there, the aspect and topic of unmarked graves isn't only, um, centered on natives. There are other people and other marginalized populations in the United States that have been impacted. So uh, that's my, uh, everything I'm putting on the table <laughs> today. And we'll just kind of uh, <laughs> uh, riff off that and I'll turn uh, back to Lucy for a comment. Um, no, I just wanted to say thank you for sharing that information. And I feel like those are really questions that we need to start asking and reflecting upon, but we also need to, you know, take, take the forethought of our ancestors and how we can sustain ourselves for, for the oncoming future. Um, for them to have the forethought during a time of distress, um, especially when they were pressured to sign a treaty, knowing that their people were under attack and being killed, you know, I couldn't imagine how stressful that would have been to be faced with, you know, like, okay, now we have to create this document and an agreement, you know, 
with you know the United States government under military supervision and you know and thinking like okay we have to think of the future of our people and knowing that and so I just wonder like what would our leadership say right now reflecting upon these things and and we are the leadership right now too reflecting upon these things but I just um I don't know it it really um is complex and there are so many ways that this intergenerational trauma has impacted us and You know, I, I think of my grandmother who went to boarding school at Chamawao, and she would not share anything more than that she attended. You know, so I, I think of, you know, again, what, what history in this conditioning has robbed me of and is now something that I have to reclaim and teach my children to ensure that they are aware of what is happening and where they come from and who they are. So I'm open to anything else. Uh, thank you, Lucy. Um, and you know, our co-host today, Patricia, when we were looking up different links in our uh, prep meeting and I was clicking around and I thought, oh, wow, who was the past board on this national uh, boarding school? And whose name do I see? Patsy Whitefoot. Um, so I cannot uh, memorize her resume fast enough. I look and click even in prep meetings. And uh, to know that we have this uh, national expertise joining us today, I wonder if, uh, Patricia, we can get more of your thoughts. Yeah, I wanted to follow up uh, on what Lucy was saying. And thank you, Emily and Robin and the team overall. Uh, so uh, I was invited uh, to this, this national meeting with a, a group of people from the Native American Rights Fund in, uh, in Boulder, Colorado. And so, uh, I went uh, to the meeting and I also took uh, an elder with me. I took Levina Washington or Levina, sorry, Levina Wilkins uh, with me uh, to this meeting um, because, you know, just because I've heard her over the years talk about the, the treatment of, uh, of our people or the mistreatment of our people. And she has this history, I think that's important to to be able to capture as well. And so I have many stories as a result of that. But um, yeah, it was a, an important meeting to be with the attorneys at that time. And then also people who had been involved in researching some of this work about what we're talking about. And we as a team have also been researching you know, our own family histories or our community histories as well. And as I've shared previously, um, my, my direct um, engagement has been through the Fort Simcoe Military School and also uh, the Acme Indian Mission in White Swan. There's so much like, you know, Emily has said, there's so many layers to this. And it's really, I, I think is a challenge to try to put it all together but I think whatever we can put together, those pieces we can put together are important because it's like opening up these wounds that you didn't know you had and you continue to move forward you know, to, toward your own uh, healing 
whatever that may be. And it doesn't come all at once because this information and education isn't a part of our experience in our public school systems, nor is it a part of our experiences in higher education uh, and elsewhere, nor is it a part of you know, the teachings in the various institutions that we interact with, you know, social and health services, health services, law enforcement, the judicial system, all of that. And so it's up to us to be, you know, opening this up and take a look at, you know, what is the past of our people and, and also just coming together and sharing what we have learned, but also what we've experienced personally and what we've researched as well. Uh, there is so much history to uh, the boarding schools when you stop, uh, when I stop to think about it, um, I have to go back, uh, you know, since colonization as well. And part of my work that I did was to examine some of the papal bulls. Now, I didn't even know what papal bulls were. I mean, I had to go look it up and find out what that definition is because, you know, I don't know that much about Catholic churches. But as I began to look at these decrees, these statements, these policies of the Catholic Church, um, there were thousands and thousands of these papal bulls. And so then that history then became a part of, uh, you know, with Columbus coming to uh, the United States and thinking he found it, uh, a new place, found um, what it what found us as the Indians. And so, and it takes me to a story again uh, for my grandmother as a child, I think I must've been like in third grade. And one day I uh, came home, you know, where we lived in Medicine Valley. And, and I told her, um, I told her, you know what? The teacher told me that Columbus found uh, the United States and found us. And, you know, as a young child and very protected by, you know, family, I'd never known my grandmother to get really, really angry. But that day she did when I came home and told her what the teacher said, you know, that the Columbus said that he found us. And, and I thought, Isn't, I was kind of thinking, I learned something today. And she just screamed and hollered at me. And I'd never seen her be so angry. She said, that is a lie. She said, that is a lie. She screamed at me. And I didn't know what that was about because I was, you know, just repeating what the authority figure had told me and that I thought I learned something that day. And so I think on that day, I learned not to trust some of the authority figures that are around you, in this case, a teacher telling you that because my grandmother had really screamed at me uh, that, what, that it was a lie. And it wasn't until I began to learn more about, you know, her own personal experiences at Fort Simcoe did I begin to learn, you know, open my eyes, but there are those, those big lies though that continue today in education or in these institutions. And, and so because of those kinds of experiences, I find myself, you know, just being paying attention to what people say and what, where are they getting this information from? Because we're having, to me, we're having to go you know, the extra mile, like walk on our moccasin, so to speak, as we uncover this information, because it hasn't been available to us at all. I mean, look at me, I'm I considered an elder today and, and still learning, you know, from the work that we're doing collectively, 
the, the, the parts that you're researching, I continue to learn as well. But at the same time, we are subjected to these racial microaggressions that occur and, and we know that continues to impact our, our children uh, today. So when I think about those microaggressions that occur with our, our children today, I think about you know, their, their self-esteem issues they might have in schools, um, the, the lack of identity sometimes and not knowing their identity or questioning their own identity. Um, similar to what I experienced, you know, with my grandmother, I, you know, our children being told one thing, and maybe there are some lies that they're learning. I, I mean, I always think about Halloween. That just, you know, angers me when I think about Halloween and, and these costumes that are created. Again, who benefits these big corporations for Halloween? Who benefits is, you know, all of these different corporations and institutions. I mean, if we were to take and research every one of these institutions, they benefit. And I also wonder, well, what about these churches? There are major churches. All of the churches that are listed, when you go and begin to uh, see the research on this with the Indian Civilization Act of um, 1819 or something like that, and then it continued to engage the churches, the churches benefited from this monetarily, financially, politically, you know, through the United States government because of the, the, the Indian Civilization Fund Act that was to provide for the healthcare education and all of that for the Indian people. And along the way, as they were, you know, creating uh, these institutions, then the churches became a part of it all the churches, the Methodist church, the Episcopal, I mean, I, I've learned so much about churches, just um, just um, researching that as well, didn't realize that all of these churches were a part of this process. And so through the National um, Native American Boarding School Healing Coalition, that was one of my priorities was to make certain that we also work on holding the churches accountable too. And then to this day, uh, through the the national organization have been working with them on addressing these issues by resolutions through the National Congress of American Indians. And the most recent one was the one just uh, passed, uh, I think it's number 12 or 14, I can't remember. But uh, yes, recounting that history, but also asking ourselves, well, who are we going to be holding accountable? And of course, it's going to be in the Department of Interior, which was formerly the Department of War, and now it's Bureau of Indian Affairs, and then also going to seek support from the United Nations as well when we talk about issues around genocide. So if it's to kill the Indian, we're talking about genocide. And this history that you can open it up is this wasn't a direct assault on us as Native people of this land, the Indigenous peoples of this land. There's, like I said, again, so many layers to this and this national work that continues to go on. And of course, I get phone calls from folks about this, uh, people that are working on this issue, and we'll just continue to do that work. And if anybody has any questions about it, please feel free to ask, to ask me or any one of us. We connect with one another, we communicate with one another. Uh, trying to keep each other up to date on the work that we're doing as well. Thank you so much, Emily.
Uh, thank you, Patsy, and for bringing us your expertise and your continued work behind the scenes. I mean, I think when we see Patsy, we just in the community, we're like, hi, what are you doing? Where are you up to? Uh, and we only ever make it past uh, what's going on this week. We don't hear that she's been researching federal policies and boarding schools stretching back 100 years, that she's been trying to call for action for this. So it's important to take that time to reflect on it. And I want to turn to Robin for your response uh, to Patsy or to you know other thoughts that have been brought up today. Yeah, uh, listening to all of you really kind of made me think of like, again, the relevancy to our conversation to MMIW and MMIP and bringing up the historical aspect of especially violence against women, uh, murder of women, uh, Yakima women. Uh, it's all congruent, you know, as we talk about timelines and, and history, it's all congruent to um, these all happen in the same time with the same effort. You know, this, these are all things that are not new. While these movements seem to be more prominent now, they, this issue was not new. You know, it, it's been around since, since contact, since um, a manifest destiny, since, since all of these things. And so for me, again, as we, we bring up children being found, um, mass graves and things like that. And again, the history that the genocidal acts that were against us were also implemented against other uh, nationalities and races. Um, you know, Hitler had taken a lot of what the United States done against American Indians uh, into how he proceeded with ethnic cleansing. You know, he definitely used this as like, oh, this is what worked, this is what didn't work. Let's try to see, you know, I wanna implement this. and. So it's all relevant. And that's how I think, you know, when we go back to the, the basis of our war cries, you know, our war cries are also for those who um, are missing and murdered, the people, uh, but also the children who didn't have that voice at that time. So for me, you know, even just thinking, reflecting back on our name, war cries, I'm like, wow, that's really powerful and bringing up that this is also a cry for them as well, a war cry. You know, this is something like, we see you, we recognize you. Um, we know you're there and we know there is others out there and this is, you know, we love you and, you know, we're, you know, we're just saddened, we're mourning, you know, we're mourning again, you know, and it's, it sucks because at times it feels like there's a new reason to mourn because there's more being found, but it's also a call to action to say like, there's more there, you, you know, acknowledge again and i love that uh patsy and emily have brought up beneficiaries for one who benefited uh, for uh, for these children to be uh dead you know at that time also who are the beneficiaries and i know it's hard um for a lot of beneficiaries to uh acknowledge that themselves and, and you know sometimes it's hard for us to even recognize beneficiaries in our own community uh, about the towns that we live in, you know, what, who benefits, you know, right now from where we live, who benefits from the reservation system, who benefits from these systems still being in place and enforced in whatever fashion it is that this happens, um, whether it be outright, um, still laws enacting in place, or whether it be covert in a policy or in the way that 
communities speak about each other, you know, when um, they're being pitted against each other. So with that, again, I feel like our conversations, again, I, I'm loving this new season and I'm loving this new uh, set that we have because I really do feel like, you know, we laid the groundwork, but now I feel like we're really getting into our roles as knowledge keepers because as Patsy had pointed out, all of us had pointed out that um, the institutions and being with an institution is a part of that benef beneficiary system. They are never going to teach us. They're never going to teach their students, no matter what system, the, the faults of that system. You know, they're never going to say, oh, this is the bad part. You know, listen. And so it lays upon us as community people. It lays upon us as matriarchs, as mothers, parents, grandparents and elders to teach that part that is never going to be taught in school. You know, we can advocate for that all we want, but they're really not going to do it because why would they, you know, <laughs> why would they want to do it? Um, because the systems rely on people buying into them, continuously participating in them. And because they are the overarching, um, the dominant factor within our, our society and our nation, you know, they're not going to go away anytime soon. But I think with the pandemic, with people having some sort of uh, detriment put on them, either willingly or unwillingly, because we all had to, to stay, we all had to take these precautions, I think people opened their mind up a bit more. So I'm seeing like the school systems, I'm seeing people's uh, thoughts about these different institutions change a bit. So I want to say that seems helpful. Also, the... the um, the forward action of podcasts, the forward action of people taking media into their own hands and taking uh, our words into our own hands, like what we're doing here today, because uh, we're imparting that wisdom that would not be shared inside of any institution, um, right. especially with the intimacy that we know it because we live it every day. Um, so with that, uh, before we have any closing things, I, of course, I want to um, Thank everybody who's watching today live. We do have a few people watching and we've had some shout outs and hellos. Um, and then I, I really look forward to us continuing these conversations. Um, they really are kind of making me, like Lucy was saying, it's like really, I was really reflecting on them for like the whole, like between our last episode. I was like, wow, you know, so I'm really, uh, it's making my brain pop up. Also, I was watching, um, and again, this is a side note, <laughs> I was watching The Godfather. And then, you know, uh, when Patsy was talking about like learning about papal bulls and learning about the different um, religious systems and, you know, watching The Godfather, you know, in the third installment, Michael Corleone is saying something like, you know, they're the original gangsters, you know, talking about the Catholic Church and all that. And this is a, a, a critique I know, and because I'm such a film nerd from like uh, Francis Ford Coppola and uh, Mario Puzo who had written the book they had rewritten those scripts together and they, they just had their own criticisms about their you know their own religion and their church so with that film you know they brought out these their own criticisms and even that at the time I mean if you look at like Godfather 3 it's like not even like taken as seriously as the other one even though it's like this great one but anyway and then it makes you think like that really takes away from everything that they're they're spouting to the communities or to whoever it is that they're trying to convert or, or bring to their religion, which is, you know, something that is beautiful, you know, the word of God and, you know, th these words that are beautiful, but then of course they get very tainted by the, the fact that they've 
made themselves into an institution. And it's like, well, we're going to get the word of God out there no matter what, you know, which is had turned into a lot of boarding schools that turned into a lot of churches on reservations and, you know, um, conflicts. And they they were, you know, which is also why there was the implementation of uh, the separation of church and state, you know, which was needed to be done at some point. Like we got to say, like these two institutions cannot have like this this mutual um, interaction because it, it obviously had some kind of detriment and it, it starts wars. I mean, it started wars before Europeans came to America. You know, that, that was one of the main wars of religious wars and things like that. So um, going down that rabbit hole, that's what Patsy brought up when she was talking about religion. I just kept thinking about that. It's like, oh, it's like the Godfather. But, <laughs> but anyway, yeah, that's all I got to say. Thanks. Um, I haven't watched the Godfather series for a while, but maybe that should be on my to-do list or my, <laughs> um, you know, one thing that we have and that Robin brought up is this value of voice and hearing it and who do we hear from, um, obviously from this podcast is very unique and also, you know, giving recognition to those, um, those groups out there that are continuing the work. So when Patsy had mentioned all the work that she had done, I saw that um, National Native American Boarding School Healing Coalition had issued a press release on June 25th, 2021. And they uh, said that they would like to express their deep gratitude for the leadership of the Interior of Secretary, um, Interior Secretary Deb Halland, whose announcement this week of a Department of Interior Federal Indian Boarding School Truth Initiative marks the first the first major federal investigation into the US government's Indian boarding school policy. Uh, NABS believes this investigation will provide critical resources to addressing the ongoing historical trauma of Indian boarding schools. And our organization has been pursuing truth, justice and healing for boarding school survivors, descendants and tribal communities. NABS continues to call for Congress to pass the Truth and Healing Commission on Indian Boarding Schools Policies Act and is working closely with Senator Elizabeth Warren's office to reintroduce the bill this summer. So for those of you policy folks out there, for those of you that want to ring up a congressman or email a congressman or woman or a person, uh, you know, this is kind of a, a next action step. Um, and uh, also, Patsy, I wonder if you can let them know uh, how much it is to even join the board. <laughs> Something I didn't know uh, when we were meeting last time uh, when I saw the membership application. Right, yeah. So the last time we were uh, we met, I just shared a little bit about uh, the board, but also the fact that you know, to be a member, you could also sign up. Uh, there's no charge for that. And I also mentioned with the work that I've been doing with the National Indian Women's Resource Center. Uh, there's the opportunity for you to subscribe uh, to the to their a magazine that they put out quarterly and that is being provided through the Seattle Indian Health Board. So again, please subscribe to these organizations. Membership is free. Please share it with your friends and your family so that they could uh, you know, keep up to date on the work that's going on. Uh, with, again, NABS, I just also want to highlight uh, the resolution. I went in to look for it. 
the, the resolution is capital AK-21-0050. Uh, That's through the National Congress of American Indians. And, and as you, you heard Emily talk about the work that's been going on with Deb Hallen, the uh, Secretary Deb Hallen with the Department of Interior, um, it's important to begin writing now so that if you have an interest in making your thoughts known, this would be the time to do that as we prepare. There's you know, so many things going on, not only federally, but also uh, statewide as well with regard to voting and redistricting. This is all important you know, to our role as Native people in our own homelands. So uh, please continue to um, join us and we move to noontime so that individuals who are working uh, can also participate as well. And again, please share that with, again, your friends and your family as we, we do that as well. There's so much uh, that we're doing together and look forward to our um, conversations with you this summer. I don't know if I answered it all. Uh, Emily, yes. but yeah, membership is free. And I thought, oh no. <laughs> yeah, I mean, they have they have a membership form, but uh, membership is free. Of course, they accept donations, so um, that you know there is a really great opportunity to join an organization. Um, and we just want to give a war cry out to uh, that organization for all the work they do, and a war cry out to those that continue to pursue truth and justice and healing. Um, it's something that's an intense process, uh, and you know it's definitely a, a range of emotions that come up. Um, I thank you so much for uh, joining us today. I want to uh, thank my co-hosts again. I'm Emily Washings with co-hosts Patsy Whitefoot, Robin Pibashi, and Lucy Smartlowit from the Yakima Nation. Uh, thank you to those uh, joining us live through YouTube or maybe you're watching later. Um, and I also want to give uh, credit to, uh, of course, our edited and produced episodes by Robin Pibashi, logo by John Only Schellenberger with Native Anthro, our War Cry t-shirts by Nicole uh, Pibashi, and music by Lee Sikikwaktua. Uh, thank you very much. <laughs>